You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You can find all your equipment needs, rental and sales at McAllister.com. We're pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Professor Emeritus of History, James Madison, Indiana University. If you want to talk Indiana history with anyone ever, there is no way that Professor Madison's name is not going to come up. He is a living legend, as deemed so by the Indiana Historical Society. I happened to be there that night and got to listen to this IU history professor give the business to someone else who was inducted that night, and that is the current president of Purdue University, Mitch Daniels. Professor Madison, thank you very much. Thank you, Robert. It was uh, it was a little terrifying to follow Mitch Daniels on the podium, but uh, <laughs> I think I defended the honor of IU. <laughs> you did. I think one of the funny things that night, and, and uh, uh, President Daniels has been on uh, our podcast. I was listening to uh, pioneer Ivan Shaheen scold him for not running for president of the United States. <laughs> and uh, there's probably very not many people who could do that, but I think Yvonne is on that list. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Madison. We're here to talk about all things history, but specifically Professor Madison's new book, The Ku Klux Klan in the Heartland. It's a chronicling of the history of the Klan uh, in Indiana and uh, the resurgence of it in post-World War One society. Uh, we are going to uh, inaugurate a new co-host today, and that co-host is Chris Spangle, history buff and podcast broadcaster extraordinaire who was thrilled when I told him that Professor Madison was going to come on. With that, Mr. Spangle, take it away. Thank you very much. Yes, I am a, a huge history buff and have uh, been directly influenced by you, Professor. I it's some great at some grade school or middle school or high school in my past I had Hoosiers a new in history of Indiana as a textbook and owned several of your books like Eli Lilly lynching in the heartland and so uh, for, I want to so when I think of Indiana history I think of you first <laughs> as kind of the the go-to guy how did you end up in that position how did you end up at Indiana University writing literally the textbook on Indiana history 
Well, thank you, Chris. First, it's a pleasure to be here, Robert, too, and to have this time to talk. Uh, historians and old history professors like nothing better than to talk. Um, to answer your question, I'd like to say that I had a clear, thought-out plan for life by the time I was 16. Uh, I'm still working on that plan, as I think most, most smart, good people are, because at the end of the day, it's, it's impossible to plan your life, and things happen. Uh, I'd like to think that the best way to do that is to be open to change and possibilities. I've tried to do that, but <clears throat> it was serendipity. It was sheer chance, all sorts of chances and, and circumstances. I never set out to be a historian of Indiana. Uh, I studied it early on when I was still in graduate school in Bloomington uh, because I needed to have a subject to study that was nearby. I was working and I needed, I needed to be able not to travel to, uh, to Paris or London or other far off places. I needed a nearby subject. But in doing that, I discovered um, the joys, and they're still joys for me, of studying nearby history. That is history that's close, that, that we think is very familiar. You know, I had students in my Indiana history class who came from Kokomo or Evansville and maybe didn't do so well in the first exam. And they would say to me, uh, well, I, I grew up in Kokomo. How come, how come you gave me a C on this exam? I know Indiana. Uh, well, actually, you don't know Indiana. There's a lot to learn about Indiana. And to learn, to learn history, to learn anything, takes a lot of hard work. And um, once, you, once you understand the joys of learning about your own place, your own community, your own state, and the importance of it in our lives and in our, in our public lives, um, then I think history opens up and takes on a, a special kind of meaning for me, at least. Are you a Hoosier by birth? No, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm still a migrant. I, I, uh, <laughs> you won't remember, Chris, there was a long time, old time comedian named Herb Schreiner, who I think was from Ohio. And people would ask him, this is 1950s, uh, when did you move to Indiana? And he said, uh, as soon as I heard about it. Uh, <laughs> I. I moved, I moved to Indiana in 1966, and while I've been away off and on, which is always good for Hoosiers to get out of here and see something else, <clears throat> um, I was not born here. I did not grow up here. Uh, so I can't, I can't tell you what life was like when I was six years old in, uh, in Fort Wayne. Uh, but as a consequence of that, I think, I hope, I sometimes have an outside perspective, an outsider's insight into Indiana, that is an advantage. I, I have a I have a mixed feeling about this state. I love it and I abhor it. Those are extremes. Usually, I'm somewhere in between those. Uh, but there's so many good things about Indiana, and there's so many things about Indiana that that I really wish were different. And it's always been that way. Uh, and it leads me to distrust those people who who talk about Hoosier pride in a way that has room only for the good things. And we can talk about that subject later because I think it's rele very relevant to, to what's on the table today. It's actually something that I wanted to start with. Your new book, The Ku Klux Klan in the Heartland, is available on Amazon now. I purchased it and started it last night. It's very well written, very interesting. And I'm 37, and the first time that I ever heard that the Klan existed in Indiana, despite being a history buff, was on a ghost tour in Irvington, uh, about four years ago when they pointed out D.C. Stevenson's home, and I started to look into it. And over the summer, I read a book called Grand Dragon uh, by a man named Lute Holtz, and my mind was absolutely blown by the size and scope of the 20s Klan, how big it was here, how um, 
impactful it was and and some of the ghosts that still circle around Indiana and the way that we think and the way that we talk. In the intro, you talk about the three phases of the clan. Why did you, what were those three phases? And then why did you choose to focus on the 1920s version of the Ku Klux Klan? Okay, those are great questions. And I hope we can come back and circle around those from different angles. Uh, first, I think we need to get on the table what you just said. There are three clans and they get confused all the time in people's minds. The consequence of that is great, great misunderstanding. The first clan really doesn't concern us directly as Hoosiers, at least. It's entirely Southern. It's formed in the South after the Civil War by Southerns, Southerners, mostly Confederate veteran, veterans, who simply do not want to accept defeat and do not want to accept emancipation and certainly don't want to accept equality for African-Americans. So they're determined to keep African-Americans in the South in a subservient state. That clan has no presence in Indiana. Let me jump ahead to the third clan, and we can, we can come back to this later, too. The third clan is, is the clan that forms during the civil rights era in the 1960s. It's mostly in the South, but there is a presence in Indiana and in the North, which we can talk about. It's very different from the clan I do focus on, and that's the clan of the 1920s, which is not only a Southern clan. It's very active in Alabama and Mississippi and other godforsaken places but it's also very powerful, as powerful in the North, from New Jersey across the Midwest to Washington State and Oregon and California with special strength in the Midwest. And in the Midwest, no state had more powerful Klan activity than did the state of Indiana. So the Klan I am focused on, the Klan I wanna talk about today, Chris, is a Klan from the 1920s. It is Northern, it is not Southern, and it is a very, very powerful and important movement. Can you give us a sense of who was in it and also what was its size? We estimate, the best estimates are that about a third of the white native-born American men in Indiana joined the Klan. That's hundreds of thousands of members. Lots of women did too, maybe as many women. We don't have a good estimate about women. So men and women in large numbers joined the Klan. Uh, they joined for all sorts of reasons, but at the top of their list was their conviction in this notion of 100% American. We are 100% American because we are white, we are native born, and we are Protestants. Now, each of those three categories is full of meaning, full of heavy freight, but 100% Protestantism is the defining feature of the Klan in Indiana. And for what reason? Well, can we go through each of those? You want to? You want to yeah, talk about each of those? Let's start because, because uh, this is I something. Think, I think that helps us. Yeah, helps because us unpack this for listeners. It, it's a, you know, there's a, there's a, a notion that history is pretty simple stuff, and you can do it on a true, false, or multiple choice exam. I never, in forty years of teaching, gave those kinds of exams because history is pretty complicated, and that's what makes it interesting. So is this subject? It's very complicated. Yeah, the first, um, you know, and I was surprised by this because the religious aspect is is an interesting one because, candidly, my great-grandparents, they passed away in the late 90s and they're in their 90s, and the first time that they had that they had met a black person in Indiana was in the 70s in Indianapolis. Yeah. Uh, and we typically tend to think of the Klan as, as the 60s Klan in, in studying history, but when you look at the 20s Klan— 
they were motivated a lot by the grievances you listed, but first and foremost, it seemed to be religion, was it not? Yeah, and this and this is where we have to keep this, the present, the clan we all remember, the older folks remember that formed in the '60s and still exists in a way today, different from this clan of the twins. And and let me start uh, with with the clan's number one enemy, the group, the people that the clan in Indiana most stigmatized was the most dangerous threat to Indiana and to America were Catholics. That's a hard concept for us to understand. But at the core of American history, from Puritans down to the mid 20th century, there was a deep anti-Catholicism among among Protestant church members and Protestant ministers and Protestant denominations, Methodists, Baptists, Disciples of Christ, many of them engaged in anti-Catholic thinking and ideology and politics. Catholics to them were foreigners, even if they're born in America, even if they're four generations old, they're foreigners because their Pope, after all, is a foreigner. He doesn't speak English, for goodness sakes. They're a hierarchical church. And Protestant propaganda said that these Catholics just, just bowed down like sheep to anything their priests and bishops and Pope told them. They, their, their clergy are celibate. That really, that really confused Hoosier Protestants. What's going on here? And then there are these nuns. There are all sorts of rumors and myths about sexual practices <clears throat> within the Catholic Church. Um, they engage, they, they create their own schools separate from the public schools. The Klan was really upset about parochial Catholic schools in Indiana and worked very hard to keep them from gaining more students and gaining more power. Um, And perhaps as important as any of this, a lot of the Catholics in Indiana and America were immigrants. And that's the second big enemy for the Klan in the 1920s, immigrants, foreigners, Germans and Irish Catholics. There are lots of them in South Bend and Indianapolis and Evansville and Terre Haute and all over the state, even in rural Indiana and Oldenburg and Jasper, Indiana. These Catholic foreigners were different. They were not like us. They didn't behave like us. They drank beer on a Sunday afternoon. Um, They sent their children to parochial schools. All sorts of aspects of their lives that were strange to Hoosier Methodists. So Catholics and immigrants are the first enemies of the Klan. And it's all over Klan talks, Klan newspapers, Klan programming, etc. So Catholics are number one. Of course, they're then what we would regard as maybe the usual suspects uh, beyond Catholics and immigrants, and that is Jews. There is deep anti-Semitism in American culture, again, from the very beginning down to the present, unfortunately. And the Klan picked up on that and pushed that with the usual stereotypes, the usual kinds of bigotry about Jews. And finally, they're African-Americans. In the later clan of the 60s down to our own day, it's African-Americans who are the number one enemy. This clan today is full of white racism. The clan of the 1920s certainly had what we would regard as white racist sentiments. But African-Americans were not as dangerous because, and this is ironic and tragic, white Americans had discovered many, many generations earlier how to keep blacks in their place as secondary citizens, excluded from privileged positions, excluded from ordinary positions. And so across Indiana, 
in the 1920s. There was all kinds of discrimination in schools, in hotels, in restaurants, in swimming pools, in hiring practices. The great company, Eli Lilly and Company, did not hire African-Americans in the 1920s, nor did most other good businesses, good corporations, good jobs, not available to Black Americans. And so Black Americans are denigrated. They're certainly not 100% Americans, but they are not the enemy, nor are Jews the enemy that Catholics and immigrants are. All of that is difficult to understand today, but essential to understanding this clan in the 1920s. Is it safe to assume that when you look at the people, that they they projected their insecurities and their anger onto people that were closest to them, that they were competing for jobs with? Is at the heart of this an economic insecurity? Is that one I'm, of the motivators? I'm a little reluctant when you, when you say projecting, Chris. That gets me into psychological evaluation of the clan. I'm Fair a little enough. reluctant to go there. Uh, I don't. I don't think. Uh, I don't think with uh, with African Americans, they're not threatening. They're not threatening the people who joined the Klan. For they're not competing for the same jobs at all. As I said, African Americans aren't going to get a job at Lilly or or the bank in Indianapolis or anywhere else, except as porters, perhaps. Um, Catholics immigrants are a little different because in the 1920s, American Catholics are beginning to move toward middle class status. They're beginning to move, Irish and German Catholics especially, away from their immigrant origins. They're beginning to cast off that old world uh, culture. They're speaking English without accents. Uh, They are becoming more and more like Americans of the middle class, of the 100% Americans. And as they do that, they're starting to get uppity. They're starting to question, why should we be denied the privileges of Protestant white Americans? And they're beginning to get a little more uppity and a little more challenging. And the Klan, by stigmatizing Catholics and immigrants as enemies, actually contributes to that movement on the part of Catholic Americans to begin to stand up. It happens at places like the University of Notre Dame. It happens in an organization formed to combat the Klan called the American Unity League, which sends speakers all around Indiana to oppose the Klan, to stand up to the Klan, to say this organization is not about American ideals. This is an organization of bigotry, and we should not allow it to stand in America. So, yes, Catholics do create because they're moving into middle-class, 100% American kinds of possibilities, do create some anxiety on the part of traditional white American Protestants that our place is being threatened. And this is an interesting point that, that I saw when the media was discussed. The Klan had the fiery cross, and there was a Catholic newspaper, forgive me, I forget the name of it, and they they would publish the tolerance tolerance it's tolerance so tolerance name for a newspaper isn't it <laughs> yes exactly and so tolerance would print the names of clan members and the clan would grow in in roles and vice versa and they'd tit for tat and they almost would swell each other's ranks and you sort of see some of that today as as one side politically opposes the other it it, it sort yeah. of grows each other's side <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about the the way that these two sides talked about each other, and what were the effects of that? Well, that's a, that's a very good observation. It's not unlike today, though it's always different in the past. But 
yeah, they, they, they did engage in, in baiting each other and stereotyping each other in, uh, in using, in, in, in reminding their supporters, their base, who the enemy was and what the enemy was doing to take away things that you value. Uh, Tolerance is published by the American Unity League, the Catholic, American Catholic organization. A lot of Irish Catholics, um, there was um, a lawyer uh, known as Mad Pat, who, uh, who was phenomenal speaking in Fort Wayne and South Bend and Indianapolis. And he just knew how to pull the Klan's chain. He just knew how to say the things that got under their skin. And so the Klan newspaper, published in Indianapolis, The Fiery Cross, and by the way, uh, listeners can read The Fiery Cross. It's all digitized. It's all available online. If you want to have a little, uh, <clears throat> a little joyful research, uh, just dip in and start to read The Fiery Cross and get an idea of what they were printing. Uh, as payment for my sins of writing a book on the Klan, I spent uh, days and days and weeks reading The Fiery Cross. And after the first few hours, it gets a little old, but you have to do it. So uh, The Fiery Cross uh, always responded to tolerance and always uh, used tolerance and the American Unity League, Irish Catholic and other Catholics uh, challenges to them as examples of how Catholics were, 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 were engaged in riotous, un-American behavior and, and doing all sorts of nasty things that were going to take away your rights, define your freedoms, and tear down America. So yes, there's a, there's a, a back and forth, a dialogue between these opposing forces. You mentioned the, uh, uh, the membership lists and uh, the American Unity League, the Catholic uh, leaders who, who organized it and led it had a wicked sense of humor <laughs> and were very, very daring. And that's displayed in uh, uh, someone uh, in 1924 broke into the Indianapolis, the Indiana headquarters of the Klan, which were on, in downtown Indianapolis and stole membership lists. And Tolerance, the Catholic newsletter, began to publish the names of Klan members. It was very embarrassing for some good upstanding citizen who saw their names published, identified as Klan members. It outraged the Klan. This was, this was they said it was all lies. These weren't true, first of all. And then they said it's an example of the way in which Catholics didn't follow the rules and, uh, and were just not to be trusted. And it seemed like it, it triggered a coalitional protection that even people who wouldn't join the Klan might find some sympathy in the way that the the people on, on whom they might have some bias for were treated. And that's sort of what I found fascinating. The other parallel that I found interesting, and I wonder if you uh, have, if, if I'm right in this assertion, is the use of conspiracy theories as a weapon. You know, the, uh, the Pope is going to build... Uh, a temple in Cincinnati and invade right. Indiana. And there was one really, it might have been, uh, I forget, Elmer Davis who wrote, you know, yes, that's what the Pope wants, Indiana, <laughs> you know, something along right. those lines. <laughs> but it seemed to me that they trafficked in conspiracy theories as a way to kind of keep everybody off balance and everybody in a fog. Yeah. Well, let me, pre I, that's a very important question too. And, uh, I'm in a way a child of the Enlightenment, and I grew up believing in rational thought. You gather up the evidence, you come to some kind of conclusion based upon real evidence that is verifiable evidence. 
conspiracy theories drive me crazy. I remember my son, when he was a teenager, was arguing that the that they never really landed on the moon. It was all staged in a warehouse in Houston, Texas. It just set me up the wall. Um, and so today, I need hardly say, the conspiracies theories that are out there that are flourishing in our own time are outrageous assaults on rational analysis, on, on public policy that's going to lead to good outcomes. They're seriously dangerous. And they've been around forever, uh, and the Klan was a master at picking them up and marketing them. And so you're quite right. The Pope was going to build a headquarters in Cincinnati or Washington, D.C. Uh, in Catholic churches, Protestants were told in Sunday services and elsewhere. Catholics were storing rifles, guns, and ammunition and dynamite to destroy Protestant churches once they began the process of taking over America. They were going to take over the public schools. They were going to take over the political system, these Catholics. They were engaged in a vast conspiracy against Protestants. And it's such nonsense. There's no verifiable evidence for any of it at the time, and certainly not today. It's such nonsense. It's hard to believe that anyone could give that credibility. And I'm sure that there were Hoosier Klan members who said this was nonsense, but still supported the Klan because they were, many of them, smart enough to make those kinds of distinctions. At the same time, lots of people fell for it and it propelled this anti-Catholicism. They were already convinced that Catholics were the enemy. And, and these kinds of conspiracy theories just, just were, were more acceptable because of the context in which they were heard by Protestants. One final question before I turn it back over to my dynamite-collecting friend, Robert. Um, <laughs> I would love to see some memorial to Lou Shank, the Indianapolis mayor during this period, one of them. He seemed like a really fun guy. He reminds me a little bit of like a John Gregg type, you know, that gregarious character yes. <laughs> who really um, effectively and took some big political risks that did cost him in finding the clan. You know, he's one figure that I, that I think should be highlighted, but what are some examples of courage in standing up to an organization that has a third of the state behind it, which is a tremendous amount of people? Right. Well, Chris, uh, first, let me let me uh, a lot of stuff on the table there. Let me just first give a shout out to John Gregg, who was in my class at IU long ago. And in fact, we just visited a few weeks ago sitting outside. Uh, John can tell stories with the best of them. I'm on a crusade for John to write a book, <laughs> his memoirs. You may know that uh, that John Mutz did. I finished reading it last week. It's a great book. It's, it's important that we have those kinds of books from our political leaders so that generations from now, uh, we can have some insight into what Indiana politics and public policy was. Um, Lou Shank is, is a hero of mine too, Chris. Uh, he was the mayor of Indianapolis. He decided in 1924 he was going to run for the governor's office. Um, he he uh, was a strong opponent of the Klan. He issued uh, an executive order while he was mayor prohibiting paraders marching down the streets of Indianapolis from wearing masks or from burning crosses within the city. And there were lots of masked Klan parades in Indianapolis and burning crosses, an early one at the state fairgrounds. Uh, 
So Schenck was opposed to the Klan, strongly opposed to the Klan. And in 24, he ran for the governor's office and was resoundly defeated. And he issued a statement on his defeat saying, okay, the people of Indiana have voted for the Klan, let them have it. And of course, the people of Indiana had the Klan. He lost to Ed Jackson, who became governor of Indiana in January of 1925. Without doubt, in my opinion, Jackson was the worst governor the state has ever had. Uh, he was deep in bed with the Klan. He was a close associate of D.C. Stevenson. He engaged in all kinds of corrupt practices, all kinds of pro-Klan activities. He should have gone to jail. Uh, we don't need a memorial, a marker for Ed Jackson, but I agree we should have an official state marker for Lou Shank and others. I've, uh, I'm on a little mini crusade and I'd like the listeners to join me. We have a wonderful Indiana State Marker Program based at the Indiana Historical Bureau. And they're putting up new markers all the time. Uh, and they're changing. They used to honor old white men, governors and political leaders of various sorts. We're now seeing markers. Uh, my favorite is one in Bloomington to Bill Garrett, who played basketball at IU in the late 40s, early 50s from Shelbyville, Indiana, one of the greatest, an All-American, one of the greatest players of his day who played all over the Big Ten, everywhere he went, from Ann Arbor to, uh, to Evanston. He was the only African-American on the court. We now have an official state historical marker for Bill Garrett. We need markers now to acknowledge our past that includes the Klan. And I think we probably have to start with the heroes. Lou Shank would be one. Uh, there is a slight reference to the Klan in the Indianapolis Times uh, marker. The Times won a Pulitzer Prize for its opposition to the Klan. Uh, and we do have an official state marker that acknowledges that. You mentioned Irvington. Um, I'd like to see a marker at the grave site of Madge Oberholzer, who D.C. Stevenson murdered. Um, that tragic event uh, is important to the downfall of the Klan. And I think it ought to be acknowledged uh, at her grave site if the family would be willing to, to allow that. On opposition, Chris, um, I, I preface this by saying, I wish I could say that from the very beginning, there was strong, powerful opposition to the Klan in Indiana. The truth is there was not. It was small, it was slight at the beginning. And the second truth is it was painfully slow to develop. It took a long time because of the immense popularity of this organization by 1923, 24, 25. But always there were people who stood up. There were some newspaper editors. There were some lawyers. There were some ministers. Uh, but the big story in the early years of the Klan are the individuals and groups who did not stand up. The Protestant church denominations at their annual meetings refused to pass resolutions in condemnation of the Klan. The Democratic Party, which was slightly anti-Klan, refused to pass a resolution that directly uh, um, called out the Klan. Other groups remained silent, not speaking up. There were individuals of courage. We don't know a lot about most of them. Uh, and as you say, to stand up to this organization, and it was, of course, a very threatening kind of organization in their robes and hoods and their secrecy and all their rigmarole and all their money and organization, a very sophisticated organization, to stand up to them required a courage that... Um, 
was really, really very, very, very large. Robert? You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Indiana historian and living legend, Professor James Madison. Thank you, Chris. I Thank appreciate you. that. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. As a Catholic kid who grew up in Irvington, <laughs> where's this going, Robert? I'm I'm eager. <laughs> uh, the story of D.C. Stevenson, whose house on University Avenue is owned by someone who, with whom I went to grade school and high school, along with Madge Oberholzer, whose house is owned by and was owned by the Schleybecker family there on University, uh, is something I remember as a little kid. Professor Madison, please take us through that story of her murder at the hands of D.C. Stevenson. Well, you, you were living history as a little kid. I'm sure you heard all kinds of stories and, and uh, some of them very frightening. This is, this is, of course, a tragedy of the first order. And I'll try to tell it very briefly. I write about it a lot in the book because it is important to the story. Let me preface it first by saying something about Stevenson. D.C. Stevenson was the grand dragon of Indiana. He was a very sophisticated, smart salesman. Uh, he created an organization uh, that was very, very sophisticated, uh, structured business principles that drove it. And he raised a lot of money for the organization, for himself, estimates maybe two, two and a half billion a year for him in income. So he became a very wealthy man in short order, selling the goods to Hoosiers who, who bought the robes and the hoods. With that money, he bought a yacht on Lake Erie, and he bought this house in Irvington. He uh, put columns on the front and made it look fancier than it was originally. And in that house, he had lots and lots of parties. The Klan is very much in favor of prohibition. The Klan is opposed to premarital sex, to adultery, to all forms of sin, a direct connection to its strength within the Protestant churches. Stevenson did not believe in or follow those ideals. So at that house in Irvington, there were all kinds of parties with a lot of booze and a lot of young women. Madge Oberholzer lived a short walk away, and she went to a few of those parties. And she worked with Stevenson. She was employed in the state house, and he got to know her. He took her on a train to Chicago, an overnight train. And on that train... In uh, early 1925, the late winter of 1925, he assaulted her, brought her back to Irvington, dumped her at her parents' house. Uh, she was badly injured. Uh, she died. Before she died, she left a deathbed statement, one of the great important primary sources about the Klan and certainly about this tragedy. A statement that was 
exceedingly thorough and was the basis for bringing charges against Stevenson for his trial in Noblesville in the fall of 1925 and for a jury of 12 men convicting him of rape and secondary murder. Madge Oberholzer dies. D.C. Stevenson goes off to the Michigan City State Penitentiary. You would think that this is the end of the Klan. It certainly caused some people to lose their enthusiasm, to give up their membership. But the Klan continued to have power and influence in the next elections, even as late as 1928. The Republican Party, which had been deeply, deeply tarred by its Klan affiliations, nonetheless in 1928 carried Indiana in most contests. It wasn't until 1929 that the Democrats, who were beginning now to run on an anti-Klan plank, were able to capture local uh, elections. Um, so it took a long time. Stevenson's crimes, his evil, and I think D.C. Stevenson is one of the most evil men to ever walk the soil of Indiana, are, are the most outrageous. But there are lots of others. Uh, Shank's successor as mayor of Indianapolis, John Duvall, also went to jail. He was a Klan guy engaged in various kinds of corruption. He was eventually convicted and sent to jail, as were others at various levels of local government across the state. So there's a lot of corruption in this organization dedicated to the best ideals of reforming and redeeming America. Uh, it's, uh, it's a contradiction, but our, uh, our lives are full of contradictions. It would be wonderful to see a plaque uh, about imagine the Irvington area. That would be a terrific tribute yeah. to a woman who gave her life unwillingly. Yeah. I'd say her life, her life was taken and she was a young woman who, who had a life ahead of her and didn't deserve anything that happened to her. Nothing. Well, we're history buffs here at the leaders and legends podcast. And uh, we've, we've tried to uh, expand some of the folks we've talked to outside of Indiana, uh, mostly historians, uh, a few people who actually uh, were part of history. And we have a podcast uh, that we've published, the will published, depending on when we post this one, with Clint Hill, the Secret Service agent who climbed on the back of the Kennedy limousine in Dallas. And so we're unabashed and we've had historians on such as Kate Anderson Brower, Harold Holzer, Craig Fairman, Jeannie mm -hmm. and David. Company. Yes, you are. Jeannie and David Heidler, Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek, uh, Grant historian Brooke Simpson, uh, David Edmonds, who wrote a terrific book about Bobby Fisher. Uh, I'm a bit of a chess nerd, as probably comes as no surprise. And then Peter Carmichael who is the uh, head of the uh, Civil War Institute at your alma mater, Gettysburg College. Yes. Did you feel preordained? You mentioned that it was kind of uh, a bit of a surprise, perhaps, to go down the history well. But your parents named you James Madison. Mm. Did you? Yeah. Do any a curse, particular, a, a curse and a blessing, Robert. <laughs> did you do any particular... Uh, uh, research or have any affinity for the fourth president and all that well, he's done? Only, 
only after I stopped teaching. I was, I, you know, I, I, uh, teaching is hard work. It takes a lot of time. And uh, when I stopped teaching a few years ago, I did do a little family genealogy, and it's fairly easy to do now with all the online sources. And uh, I can say with certainty that um, I am descended. Uh, this, this sounds like bragging. I do not mean it to be bragging because it gives me absolutely no special status whatsoever. But my first ancestor uh, on the Madison side of the family arrived from England in 1609 in Jamestown, Virginia. His name was Isaac Madison, and he was captain of the Jamestown militia. He did very well as a slave owner and Indian killer uh, and in other investments as well. And uh, the fourth president of the United States and I are both descended from Isaac Madison, 1609. So uh, we have we have that uh, maybe in our genes, but I really don't think so. I don't think that accounts for anything. I'm quick to say that uh, James Madison, um, the father of our Constitution and so much more, is uh, was a lot smarter than I could ever hope to be. Even though I can claim to be six foot two in height and he was only five four, but other than that, he's got me beat. Hands down. Have you been to Montpelier? Have you seen his? Place? I have several times. Several times. It's a wonderful place. Wonderful place to visit. I mean, Monticello overshadows it for most tourists, but I think we ought to stop at Montpelier too. You've taught Indiana history for decades. I remember in when I was an undergrad at IUPUI studying history and had an English, excuse me, a history professor talk about how Indiana became North when it used to be West. He talked about much of that within the context of slavery. Yeah. Is that a theory with which you agree or how did the perception of Indiana change from a state that was part of the Northwest ordinance and came out of that in the early 19th century to being a true bulwark against secession under Oliver P. Morton. That's, that's a fascinating story. I, I published a history of Indiana called Hoosiers in uh, 2014. And I write a lot about that because I, I got, when I went back and worked on it again, as I was writing that book, Hoosiers, I, I really got engaged in that. It's a fundamentally important story. That is how Indiana, how Hoosiers, in the first decade and a half of the 1800s, decided that they were not going to allow slavery in Indiana. It's far too complicated for this story, except to say that it was exceedingly important, and it was a close call because there were Hoosiers, William Henry Harrison among them, the territorial governor, who brought slaves to Indiana, and others who wanted slavery in Indiana. There were others like Abe Lincoln's father, Thomas, who had no use for slavery, wanted no slaves allowed. And it was the anti-slavery action that won the day. And in 1816, when Indiana created its first constitution, the best words ever written on the soil of Indiana, I believe, it included a provision outlawing, prohibiting, constitutionally prohibiting slavery. That is so fundamental, so important. Just think if it had gone the other way, what would have happened when traders fired on Fort Sumter in April of 1861. Indiana did join the Union. And while there's lots of conflict among Hoosiers during the Civil War, Indiana joined the Union and Indiana boys fought bravely and importantly for the Union forces against the Confederate traitors. I have strong feelings about this subject, Robert, you can probably tell. 
Well, Indiana's role in winning the Civil War for the North is underrated, in my view. I agree. And one of the, uh, this will be a question you're going to get here in a few minutes, but if uh, maybe a second or third tier event I would like to have witnessed in history was the meeting uh, between Grant and Stanton that took place at Union Station. Yeah. Indiana was divided. Southern part, much more sympathetic and opened itself up for Confederate sympathizers and Confederate raiders to come through. But the man who, whose leadership is fundamentally important, critical, and almost dispositive to how Indiana fought that war was Oliver P. Morton. What are your thoughts on him and his leadership during the War of the Rebellion? Superb. Outstanding. Uh, Oliver P. Morton, I believe, absolutely, was the best governor Indiana ever had. And we were so fortunate to have a governor, a leader like him during the greatest crisis in Indiana history and in American history, the Civil War. Morton, not perfect, but Morton was superb. I was, uh, I was with uh, the current president of Purdue University when he was governor of Indiana. And as you know, Robert, uh, Mitch Daniels likes history. He reads history. One of the very good things about Mitch Daniels. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about Indiana governors, and he asked me who the best governor of Indiana was. I I thought for a minute that maybe I should say, you, Governor Daniels, Uh, (laughs) but I'm a historian, not a politician. I'm not running for anything. And so I said very clearly, Oliver P. Morton, and Governor Daniels immediately agreed with me, and we had a nice conversation about the Civil War and about Governor Morton. So I've mentioned the worst, Ed Jackson during the Klan era, the best, Oliver Morton during the Civil War. It was my great honor um, in 2008 to be the MC for the 90th birthday party for P.E. McAllister. Speaking mm. of history geniuses, his loss is, is felt, um, it's felt uh, every day. I was on the Indiana Bicentennial Commission with Mr. McAllister and Wow, was he was he a character? I you just want to give him a hug every time you see him. The the the. As, <laughs> no, as I know my, there's some steel behind that. <laughs> as my daughter said, he's the cutest man ever, and I can't improve on that. He he told a great. Could I have time for a quick piece? He, he, Please. He, he he told a, a great story. Someone asked him how he was, and he says, "Well, I'm still playing golf." And it was true. He played golf very late in life. He said. I can hit the ball as far as I can see. He said, I can only see about 20 yards out there. But <laughs> I think for PE, it was a much, uh, the golf was fun, but it was also a way to get to the 19th hole and have that martini. It was very important <laughs> to him. At that birthday celebration, Mitch Daniels was one of the speakers, as long, along with people like Jim Morris and uh, the current vice president of the United States, Mike Pence. But I introduced Mitch Daniels as the greatest governor in Indiana since Oliver P. Morton. (laughs) And he seemed to take that okay. I'm sure he was okay with that. I'm a historian, so I'm going to have to say we need to wait another generation or two to make that judgment. But uh, uh, to be very serious at the moment, Robert, I think Mitch Daniels is a very important governor for Indiana's history. A different kind of governor, as you well know, and as Hoosiers have played attention, though, 
and a very, very important governor. Whether he was right or wrong on all the issues, well, we could, we could debate that as citizens and later on as historians, but a very important governor. And the question I wanted to ask you is, and I agree with you completely, I think he is the most consequential governor since Oliver P. Morton. But how important in your studies, one of the things, and Chris and I talk about this quite a bit, you read all the time and you read all sorts of different things and whether it's a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, the one thing that always stands out to me is the importance of leadership. One man, one woman. If you were constructing the Mount Rushmore of the greatest leaders Indiana's had, who would you put on there? That's a fascinating question. I've been, I've been fascinated by leadership for a long time. In fact, um, about 15 years ago, I actually taught an undergraduate seminar on leadership, on the history of leadership. And uh, I wasn't very happy with it. I only taught it twice because I couldn't figure out what leadership was. And I read the literature on leadership, all the best authorities, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and uh, it's hard. You, you can come up with some lists people have of what makes for good leaders. But at the end of the day, it's very hard to do. It's very hard to do. I would, I would to answer your question, I would say uh, that our greatest leader in America and my favorite American of all time is Abraham Lincoln. And we all know enough about Lincoln to know how, how amazing it is that an individual with his background, less than a year of schooling, he wrote in his autobiography total, an individual with his background could become what I believe our greatest leader ever. He just had a combination of leadership skills that are matched by very, very few, certainly very, very few of our presidents. I would, I would put, don't fuss at me. Don't fail me. I would put Washington ahead of him if only because of what he did twice. Well, you're talking about George Washington now, our first president. Right? Yes, sir. I, I've, I, I started off um, ignorant, and, and I've, I've read a little bit about Washington in recent years, recent decades. I've read the biographies, and he has moved up significantly in, in my understanding. Um, and, and he's up there. He's up there. And he has, you're right about the qualities of leadership. Again, whatever they might be, Washington had them in all kinds of ways, often very subtle and so very powerful. And you can see it in the way in which his troops in the revolution, the people around him when he was in office, uh, the American people who wanted him to stay for another term, uh, and he went back to Mount Vernon. Uh, so, so Washington, yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a good choice. There are not many examples, or I, maybe I can't think of another example of a man who walked away from what would have been near complete and total power twice. Yeah. We are talking with Professor James Madison. He has a new book out, The Ku Klux Klan in the Heartland. And we're having a general history discussion because we're history nerds here and we are unabashed about it. What's your favorite part of the movie Hoosiers? <laughs> See, I haven't seen that in quite a few years. My, my son loves that film and he, uh, he can recite every line of dialogue in there. And I would watch it only if he were next to me because it's so funny to watch him watch it. Um, gee, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I like the assistant coach and the dialogue that he has. 
<laughs> you were End at you, you were at IU in 1987. The movie comes out. I was in basic training. I didn't see it till I came out of it. But and then IU wins the national championship the night of the Oscars. What was it like yeah. just to be in Bloomington to be at IU at that time when Coach well, Norman Dale was, uh, in the movie? Yeah, I was I was a, dis, a respected history professor, so I did not run downtown to Kirkwood or to the Fountain. Uh, <laughs> But in those days, I was a huge IU basketball fan, a huge IU basketball fan. And um, at night, it was a huge history buff. So did he uh, yeah, you that's out? true. He was. That's true. He was. I changed. Uh, that gets us into another area. I changed a little bit about uh, about this subject later on and even today. But in those days, I was a huge IU basketball fan. Um and and it was it, it's hard to describe it it leaves it leaves very very warm memories for all of us who were younger in those days um, when IU won that championship and then other events over the, over the course so yeah we we've had um, Ray Tolbert on the podcast <laughs> told some terrific stories about the 1981 national championship team. After he passed, the star asked me to write an op-ed about Senator Richard Luger. Mm. I called him the most important public servant in the history of the state of Indiana. How right am I? How off am I? Well, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna challenge that. I'm gonna say it's a it's a tough call. Um, but about my, my respect for Luger, I think is is near where yours is. Uh, in so many ways, um, I, I, I uh, you know, from the very beginning, when he became mayor of Indianapolis at a very, very young age, and uh, uh, especially in the Senate, where he led in so many areas, and in particular in international affairs, in uh, in weapons, in nuclear weapons, and in so many other ways. Uh, a model of, of statesmanship, of public leadership. I've known several people who've worked for him in his office. And uh, that's always a good indicator. You always want to know what the underlings think of the big shot, you know, and whether behind that public facade, there's something you could also admire. And, and I knew some of these, some of them were former students. I knew some pretty well. And uh, I don't think they were blowing smoke when they talked about the senator with great respect and great admiration. One told me that in his, uh, even in his sixties and seventies, he could still run further and faster than most of the young people on the staff. <laughs> or he did. We've had several either IU graduates of kind of that era or Luger staffers uh, on. Um, yeah. He, he, well, that's a, that's a sign of leadership. He was able, I think, to have around him really, really good people. Uh, uh, you know, the young IU people and maybe not the Purdue people, they're not that sophisticated, but the young IU people certainly uh, who were interested in politics, if they had a Republican in especially, wanted to go work for Luger in Washington. It was a plum assignment. Uh, yeah, we've had we've had Jim Morris on the podcast, Mitch Daniels, as, as I mentioned, <clears throat> Lou Gehrig, Jim Kittle, Mark Miles. I mean, the list goes on and on. And he yeah. touched some. Let me just people. be fair to the other party, though, uh, because uh, my son, uh, when he uh, when he was in college, was able to secure an internship internship working for Lee Hamilton. Yeah, Lee Hamilton was in Congress, and I would put Lee Hamilton 
up there as a public policy figure have a great distinction. I would also say that from my son and other young people I know who worked in Lee Hamilton's office, behind that facade was a phenomenal guy, a genuine, warm, and, and, and uh, decent Hoosier. We would certainly love to have uh, Representative Hamilton on the podcast. We we yeah. just did one on the passing on Joe Kernan. We've uh, we did one on Andrew Jacobs and the career of Birch Bay. Um, so we try to touch all. All the right, that's good. That's good. Uh, a couple of months ago, I wrote an op-ed again in the Star, uh, calling for reparations for Jim Crow era African Americans. And as you may guess, it got a reaction, mostly positive, but some negative. And that's kind of what you do when you put your name out there. With all the talk about reparations and, and the numbers being thrown out, it's, they're somewhat fantastical. Uh, I wrote about this about seven years ago in the Indianapolis Business Journal as well. When you look at Jim Crow era, 20s, I mean, really starting with Reconstruction all the way through, you could say, late 60s. Um, but especially the that 1920s to 19 early 60s era, it seems to me that there's there's no possible excuse for the way Black Americans were treated. Is an idea like reparations for Jim Crow era African Americans one worth pursuing, or is it just another kind of like initiative that would divide us in your view? Yeah. Well, it's a very controversial issue, as you know. Um, and um, I'm, I'm glad you wrote that because I think it's a subject uh, that, that gets people's attention and in, in the right way can cause them to think about why reparations might just be a reasonable thing to do. I'm less interest, interested in reparations as a form of, let's say, a, a money or scholarship or other kinds of uh, financial or substantive uh, form of paying back for the huge damage that white Americans have done from 1619 to the present to African-Americans. I think that damage is huge. I've come to the conclusion in the last few decades as a historian, as a citizen, that white racism is one of the top two or three problems in America today and always has been. So we've got a huge issue here. What do we do about it? I think the reparations should take the form of, first of all, acknowledging it. And there's so many white folks who will not acknowledge it, who do not believe there's such a thing as systematic racism, who do not believe there's such a thing as white privilege or even male privilege. And I believe these are not, these are not issues of, of opinion. These are issues of fact. If you read the history of America in all, in any subject, any good historical account will provide lots of evidence of systematic racism, of white privilege. So we've got a serious problem and, and I think we need to acknowledge it. And then I think we need to respond to it by, by doing more to learn our history and by doing such things as what we were talking about earlier, Robert, of of placing state markers at the sites and the places that acknowledge African-Americans, that acknowledge the racism, that acknowledge the achievements of African-Americans like Bill Garrett, all kinds of ways to understand this history and to incorporate it into our present rather than 
to tell ourselves bedtime stories of patriotic history when everything has always been hunky-dory, blue skies and ice cream sundaes. That's not our history. That's not real history. That's myth. That's comfort history. That's feel-good history. And I think we need a grown-up history with no room for that kind of stuff. May I have one more question on that, Robert? I was just say, Chris, go ahead. But uh, along with a marker with George Taliaferro and his wife, wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful, oh, I knew them, of couple. course. George and Vi Taliaferro. They were great, great citizens of Indiana and of America, and they were out there every day, wonderful. every day. Yeah. So, Chris, w- when you piggybacking off of the systemic racism, because I think when you look around at people bristle because interpersonal racism is in my view, historically never been better. But when you look at the holdover from a society where one third of the state was uh, in the Klan within my great, great grandparents generation, are are there things that you, as you studied this period for this book, where you saw it kind of carried through to today, be it laws or phrases like law and order or ways of thinking, what are some of the ghosts from the 20s clan that you see in Indiana today that we don't recognize as birthed in that era? Well, I've, I've heard from readers of this book, The Ku Klux Klan, The Heartland, that the, the goals, the language, the methods that the Klan used in the 1920s are eerily familiar today. They're different in many ways. But you can see parallels, you can see similarities between the Klan of the 1920s and certain uh, forms of public policy and leadership and activity at all levels, down to the grassroots. You can see similarities. Uh, Folks today are uh, often more sophisticated. They use what we call dog whistles or coded words. Klan did that too, but they were... They were less constrained. They were more willing to, to, to speak and use words that you seldom hear today anymore, at least in public circles. But I think you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be looking today for men and women in robes and sheets. They're there. They were in Charlottesville, of course. Uh, you should look for the Klan descendants today dressed like we're dressed uh, in, in press shirts and silk blouses and um, standing and speaking in a very respectable way sometimes, uh, looking like, like pretending to be good Americans, waving the flag and all the other good things, but using ideals that are very similar to those of the Klan of the 1920s. We haven't, we haven't you know, the answer to the question, I'm often asked this, is the Klan dead? And I say yes and no. The Klan of the 20s is dead. It died about 1930. But the Klan ideals of the 20s are still very much alive. And I regret deeply, deeply, that in the last several years, those Klan ideals have found a new life, a new birth. Uh, And they're more virulent now than they were 30 years ago or even 20 years ago. Robert? You done, Mr. Spangle? You sure? I'm done. You got another one? No, no, I'm good. I'm good. Are you sure? Yeah. All right. We wouldn't have a podcast, Professor Madison, if it wasn't for Chris Spangle. So 
you know <laughs> what chris wants chris gets Listen, all we, right we could do another two hours on it but i'm not gonna <laughs> impose on everyone's time for self-indulgence uh professor madison do you have a favorite history movie oh that's a tough one boy you know uh, historians tend to um get very snotty about history nitpick that's always, not what they wore they got you know. i know we always we always <laughs> want to show how smart we are and, and point out the errors uh that's a tough one i haven't i haven't thought about that um what's your favorite one robert i'll tell you if i like it or not <laughs> favorite favorite history movie lincoln's pretty damn good it's really accurate. Yeah. It's very yeah. accurate. And that's partly due to our one of our podcast guests, Harold Holzer. Yes. Um, I mean, you yes. look at something like Braveheart, and it's such an epic, but the history is so god-awful. It's not even Well, I can't close. stand to watch that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, Saving Private Ryan isn't necessarily – I mean, it's a history movie. It's not an actual, it's not an actual event. But as, as a – in that same op-ed for The Star, I wrote that if I was in charge of the world – Saving Private Ryan and Mississippi Burning would be required viewing for all high school yeah. seniors. Required, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, there's 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 so many more out there, and you know, the King's Speech, not very accurate, but a pretty damn good. I like I liked all of those. You know, I I also judge I judge uh, history films, Hollywood films, by not just whether I like them so much, and I did I loved Lincoln. I thought Lincoln was a fantastic film. But, but by my sense of how deep they get into the American public, if a lot of people watch them, and if there's evidence that they've absorbed some of the meaning, some of the significance of these stories, and I think in the films that you've mentioned, there's a lot of evidence that they have, um, and that's good. And so I like those kind of films, um, especially if, they, if, they, if the public absorbs the kind of meaning that I think they ought to absorb from, from film. A Braveheart certainly made its mark in Scotland and yeah. the darkest hour. The movie about Churchill was terrific. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, you do kind of, if you're a history buff and you've studied the period and you're watching a movie and you're kind of like, Oh man, that is not even close. Uh, right. But I guess we should mention in the movie Lincoln, the presence of another Hoosier and future vice president. He was speaker of the house at the time, Skylar Colfax played a prominent part, especially at the end as they're debating the amendment. Right. Uh, we're with Professor James Madison, and we have reached the five questions portion of the Leaders and Legends podcast. <laughs> Professor Madison, are you ready? I'm ready. What was your first job? Um, first real job was carrying newspapers. I grew up in a very small town in Pennsylvania, and my family had a lock on the newspaper business. Uh, we carried all the newspapers. I was the first, and then my two brothers followed behind. Uh, we didn't allow any other kids to carry newspapers, and uh, that was my first real job. <laughs> the tweed. And it was running a business, you know. <laughs> Pendergast is in charge of the. Yeah. <laughs> Second question: What was your first concert? First concert. Oh my goodness. Um. I saw the Smothers Brothers in college live. That was pretty cool. At IU or Gettysburg? No, at Gettysburg. Number three. These last three are going to be brutal for you, so I apologize Ooh. in advance. They always are for historians. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? 
the last one I read, probably. No, I told you, I just read a book on medieval manuscripts. I loved it by Christopher <laughs> de Hamel. Uh, it's so far removed from our own time and our own circumstances. And yet it's possible to get engaged in that book on medieval illuminated manuscripts. <laughs> it's an exotic world, different from ours. And yet there's a humanity in those stories. In the book of Kells, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I just finished that book um, uh, a few weeks ago. And, um, you know, I could name others. I've become a great Kurt Vonnegut fan. Slaughterhouse-Five is a fantastic book. Um, but lots of books. I, I, you know, one of the things history buffs have to do is read, you know, and the people we live with or associate with always make fun of us because we've always got a book. But I feel sorry for people who don't always have a book. Is it apocryphal what Mark Twain said? He said so many wonderful things. Yeah, which but, one? Uh, a man who doesn't read good books has no advantage over a man who can't read good books. <laughs> question point. number question number four. This is tough. If you could witness any event in history, which event would you choose? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Boy, that, you're, I, I don't think about these kinds of things. I'm, sorry. I'm kind sorry, of narrow sorry, and small-minded here. What event would I love to witness? Sorry, Jim. Sorry. Well, you know, I uh, I already said that, that I just I just have the greatest admiration for Lincoln. I'd like to be in his in his uh, office when he's working on the Emancipation Proclamation. We are actually like going to, to have Harold Holzer back on the podcast next week and on November. 16th we're going to post a podcast with harold holzer probably the world's leading lincoln scholar um, about lincoln the whole hour or so is devoted to lincoln we'll post it on the 16th three days ahead of the anniversary of the delivery of the gettysburg address november 19th 1860 wonderful wonderful question five if you could have dinner with anyone living today living today two hours off the record whom would you choose oh well I'm a great fan of the singer Emmy Lou Harris, and I've met her once and had a little conversation with her. Uh, she is very, very smart. Uh, not everyone will know Emmy Lou Harris, but uh, I, I'm a great cook, and when I'm cooking, I'm listening to Emmy Lou Harris usually. Uh, and it turned out that Emmy Lou Harris loves Lincoln, and uh, she knew something about Lincoln. And of course, we were interrupted in this conversation. There were other people, so I'd like to sit with her and. Uh, and listen to her talk about Lincoln outside the box, not a scholar, not an expert, but a smart person who's brought a lot of joy to my life. You know, there are lots of candidates that just popped into my head. Well, that's the most outside the box answer we've had yet. <laughs> Isn't it Spangle? Yeah. <laughs> now Barack Obama or George W. Bush or. <laughs> oh, Obama. I'd be so intimidated by Obama. You know, I don't think I could. I, I couldn't say a word. If well, I and George W. Bush is a monster history fan. History That's true. Fan. He is. He Huge. Is. I'm kind of intimidated by his life after the White House. You know, he's he's proven he there's something there. Our guest today on the Leaders and Legends podcast, sponsored by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction. The Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. 
as I started to say before I almost messed up the sponsorship promo, our guest has been Professor of History Emeritus, Indiana University, James Madison. His new book, The Ku Klux Klan in the Heartland, is out. Professor Madison, thank you for joining a couple of history buffs on the Leaders and Legends podcast. We had an absolute joy. Chris, do you want to say something real quick? No, it was a fantastic uh interviewing you and talking to you and i highly recommend the book it's really really good so far thank you chris thank you robert thank you very much for listening to leaders and legends brought to you by veteran strategies incorporated if you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services please send us an email at robert at veteran that's robert at veteran